Hello and welcome to Cup of Tea with UHB Charity, a hospital charity podcast that focuses on inspiring stories from our NHS staff and patients from across our hospitals in Birmingham. I am your host, Ella Igledon. Make sure to tune in each Friday for a new episode. And if you'd like to be featured on the podcast, please send an email to charities at uhb.nhs.uk. I would love to hear from you. Welcome back to a brand new episode and happy Friday. This week is quite an interesting episode. I am joined with a guy called Mac who is a transport manager at the Royal Centre for Defence Medicine at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. So Mac talks to me all about his military background and his incredible fundraising for Fisher House which he has done so much of and raised so much money. It's honestly it's just amazing. I mean, again, I'll, I'll mention Colonel Mark Foster, is a lot of the patients he would have treated, and the first thing he says to them is, I'll get you diving within two years. Mm-hmm. So somebody who's just lost an arm, had their ears um, burnt off from horrific injuries, and horrific scarring that later on, they you know they m- might always want to cover their bodies up. But he um, entrusts positivity to them and they come out diving with us, and then they're not ashamed of their their injuries. I'm not saying that they are ashamed of their injuries, but some of the scarring mm-hmm. is quite is quite hor- changing, isn't it? It's yeah. quite horrific. I think one of the most interesting aspects of this interview was hearing Mac talk about the Diving for Injured initiative, which is actually one that is supported by UHB Charity. And I don't want to give too much away about it if you haven't heard of the initiative before. It's honestly amazing what Mac and his team are able to do for injured personnel. And yeah, I I don't want to give too much away. You definitely have to stay tuned for this episode because it's just, it's so inspiring to, and uplifting, if I'm honest, to listen to someone like Mac talk about the difference it can make to their mental health after injured personnel have gone through so much with traumatic accidents and injuries to being able to do something they never thought they'd ever do is absolutely amazing so definitely stay tuned for that and we also have a chat about some of Mac's experiences in war zones which was equally very very interesting so it was an absolute pleasure to catch up with Mac and talk all about his life really and his military background so a really kind of jam-packed episode of lots of different things but really interesting so definitely stay tuned for all of that so without further ado here is my interview with mac thank you so much for joining me today let's start actually with have you got a fun fact about yourself how would you describe yourself to other people I'm just going to throw you in right at the deep end to start with i didn't prep him for that question there <laughs> <laughs> was a thought you were asking me about my career <laughs> But have you got a fun fact about yourself that some think people don't maybe know about you? I actually think that's always one of the worst questions that people ask you, isn't it? Because I don't know what my fun fact is. I've met a queen. That is a fun fact. That is a very fun fact. So the queen opened the hospital here in 2012. Mm -hmm. And I was only one of five um, honoured to to actually meet the queen when she opened the the Queen Elizabeth Hospital Mm -hmm. in Birmingham. Which and is the pinnacle of anybody anybody's yeah. career. Did she live up to your expectations? Was she different? Yes, she was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> different to how you expected? Uh, no, I've always been a bit of a royalist. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was uh, probably the greatest day, apart from marrying, marrying my wife. 
of my life. Yeah, we do get yeah, that in there, haven't you? Yeah, that is that's a strong, good fact. Fun fact, should I say? Let's talk about your background then. So, growing up, career-wise, did you ever have like an idea of what you wanted to be? So, from a very early age, we we were from a, a military background. My, my father, my great grandfather, was RAF and um, army in the First World War. I have five brothers and two sisters. Okay. Big Four of my brothers uh, were in the services as I was growing up, the okay. Navy and RAF. So I always wanted to join the army from the age of four. And I, I lived out my dreams to where I am now. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's um, a lot of siblings, a lot of siblings. So we're talking about your time then, and your experience of being in the army, what what was that like and how many how many years did you do it for? So I've been in the army now 34 years and 24 of those years were in the regular service and the last 10 have been full-time reserve service. So my regular service of 24 years, um, I wouldn't change it for, for anything. It's, it's been a, w- a wonderful experience of career. And I've done 11 operational tours from many years in Northern Ireland to the Balkans and uh, four tours of um, um, Iraq. Um, and I consider myself lucky for the for the time that I've spent in some very sticky and dangerous situations to where I am now. Mm-hmm. And what was it like travelling to those places like Iraq? You know, if you can describe it to people that haven't been to war zones, what, what are those places like? Very hot, um, very dirty. Sanitation, non-existent, and waiting for the unexpected. That that usually happened, whether it be getting mortared or getting shot at. Mm-hmm. Um, but all your training that you you do on the lead up to operations, it could be up from anything from eighteen months to two years, preparing you and your team and your squadron and your regiment to deploy in areas that are unsavoury and with the right equipment. Nine times out of ten. Um, you were protected. Mm. And were there times, obviously, if you're going to terrifying places like that, were there times that you thought, do you know what, I can't do this anymore after some experiences that you may have had? Or have you always, you know, kind of kept a really strong mindset about it all? That's never entered my my head or my mind. Mm. The people that you deploy with and you you stay friends for for life, they've got your back and you've got their back. Mm -hmm. And I think the camaraderie between the people that are deployed with you is what keeps you going, mm-hmm. without a doubt. And the British Army does it, does it really well on any deployment, so much so that sometimes when you come back off the deployment, you wish you were back out there <laughs> um, fighting whatever cause you were out there for. And when you were doing this, so when you're, you were going to places like Iraq and stuff, were you already with your wife? And was that kind of hard, being away from your family when you're, you know, you're deployed elsewhere? Yes, it's um, it, it is. It's a very testing time for for any families to be away from for six months. But mm-hmm. um, my wife, she, she knew exactly what she was getting into, and um, that I would be away for long periods. Um, the last Iraq tour that we did, um, I spent most of my time training in Poland and Canada. So mm-hmm. you know that six months wasn't actually six months; it was more like um, eighteen months um, deployment. She understand, you know, the reasons why, and she comes from a military background as well, okay. so she she knew what to expect. Yeah. 
Uh, it doesn't say it doesn't mean that you don't miss each other every day because you, you do. But mm-hmm. but um, it's you know the reason why you join the forces. The reason why you join the forces was to see a bit of the world and to actually practice what you've been taught in, in your deployment drills. Yeah. Definitely. So if we talk about your role now then, do you want to talk about yeah, what, what you get up to now, what a typical day is like? So there was it was a smooth transition from regular to the full-time reservist role here at uh, Royal Centre for Defence Medicine, um, the QE Hospital in Birmingham. So the transport role is a varied role from supporting mainly the, the staff and the nurses, but we also have a a very special role to to support Fish House. Mm-hmm. So when the families come here or patients come here, uh, my team of the, the welfare drivers will also help Fish out and the Defence Medical Services Welfare when we're called upon to. So we've I've met many patients and many families over the years, and it's a really satisfying job. That although if they've come to the QE, they are in a serious condition. So the facility here at Fish House. Um, and, and what it does for the patient and the family is, is second to none. And we play a small part in that, in making sure they, they are looked after and transport-wise, whether it be um, getting the family out for day trips or whether it be taking the patient onwards to um, Stamford Hall, which used mm-hmm. to be the whole Edley Court for their rehabilitation. No day is ever the same, and, that, and that's what I love about the job, that mm-hmm. it's, it's not boring. So it could be collecting um, our personnel from deployment, whether it be picking people up from deployment from um, all parts of the world, wherever our our clinical staff are needed, then it's our job to get them to and from the point of disembarkation, whether it be on the new um, aircraft carriers or whether it be through Bryce Norton or, or Heathrow to get them to their destination. We then may have uh, veteran patient tasks. Mm. So we're working with uh, patients that are at the orthopedic hospital that have just gone through um, their checkups for osseointegration. So quite a few of our amputees have had osseointegration and the clinical staff are now reviewing the process of the operation and then sending them on to Stamford Hall in uh, Leicestershire, which is the new Defence Medical Rehabilitation Centre. So we are seeing patients that were here six, seven, eight years ago mm-hmm. and now come back for a follow-up assessment on the OSI integration. Mm-hmm. And what's the most rewarding aspect of your role? Kind of what gets you out of bed every day to come and do this job? I mean, two factors. One is when the patients are here and their families are here, any assistance that we can give, we will um, do our best to make sure that the family is welcome and that patient has got all the support. And that goes from not only us as a small part, but everything from the clinicians to the welfare support and to the staff at Fisher House who make sure that the family is made welcome and the daunting uh, injuries that some of our patients have, have had, it makes it um, slightly easier stress-wise for the family mm-hmm. and, and secondly is anybody that is deploying to wherever in the world from Royal Centre of Defence Medicine which is most weeks um, 
we make sure that they're delivered to the this location and the process is smooth and that they're on time, they're ready for their deployment. Yeah, so I, when I know that somebody is deploying, which is most weeks, I want to make sure that um, they have the right um, logistics in place mm. to get them and their kit to the desired disembarkation to wherever they're going in the world. And you've mentioned a little bit about Fisher House. Have you, you know, spoken with families about the difference this house makes to them? Have you, can you think of any feedback from the top of your head that you've heard from um, families or the patients themselves, or just even what you you think of Fisher House? So before Fisher House, there was a SAFA facility house, which was it was very nice, but they didn't have. Um, I think they only had five rooms, so if you get more than five sets of families in, then they were they were put in local hotels, mm-hmm. which were not very good. So and the stress of of being in a wider community where people don't understand what that person is going through yeah. or the family's going through, it tended to have more stress on them. When they built uh, Fish House in twenty thirteen, with having eighteen rooms, we could accommodate more families that were here to support the injured service personnel within the uh, hospital. So the more people that were here, the more people that was, they were surrounded by that were all going through the same thing, made it a lot easier for the family to cope with whatever tragedy had happened to mm-hmm. her, their son or their daughter. So on a, on a feedback, just just seeing people relaxed and, and you know, nobody's, if you're in Fisher House, it's not a happy time, but the fact that it's a home away from home um, makes people more comfortable, less stress, and they can give their full support to their injured son or daughter that is in, in one of the operating theatres. Mm-hmm, definitely. And if we talk about fundraising then, so you've done lots of different fundraising over the years and you've said that you're doing one in November as well for Fisher House. Do you want to talk about the different types of fundraising that you have done and kind of why it's so important to you? Like what what kind of kickstarted you wanting to um, give something back to Fisher House? So when I first um, joined um, RCDM, my, my CEO at the time, Colonel Beaton, asked me about setting up a team for Nijmegen, which, which is Nijmegen marches is 100 miles over four days usually in really hot weather with full kit. It's quite a, a, a challenging uh, feat, especially mm-hmm. with 15 to 20 kilograms of, of equipment on your back each day. I didn't want to set up the team. I wanted to lead the team. He, he quoted that I was getting on a bit. So I'm now 54. At the time, I, w- I would have been around 45. And uh, he said, you don't have to do it, Mac. All I want you to do is to lead the team, sorry, to manage the team, and um, so that they can experience this type of uh, um, exercise. So I was having none of that. So I led the team. And at the same time, Fish House uh, plans had just been written up and there was they were asking for charity donations. And everything that I've talked about before, about Fish House, about how it makes injured personnel's families feel at home so they can fully support their, their son or their daughter. It, it just all tied into one. So I did my first, I'd done the Namigans marches before, but I did my first with RCDM in, in 2012. And since 2012, I've done every one apart from the ones in the pandemic, but I also mm-hmm. did a virtual one for the pandemic. Okay. Well. So we were able to raise. So through the Namigan team, I've raised money for 
uh, fish house um, every year since 2012. Oh, wow. I, made I didn't realise you'd done yeah. it for yeah. that long. It's amazing. Yeah. I've also done other charity events through running. So by running, um, I've done the New York Marathon. This will be my third time this year. Previously, it's been for um, Army Widows Association and Cancer Research. And then the one that I did in 2018 was again for, for Fish House. And, and I'm very lucky this year that um, I have a sponsor and um, as a backer, um, and Mr. Steve Piggott of Hull. And I get to do the New York Marathon again for Fish House, which um, I'm grateful, obviously, for, for backing not only myself to, to run it, but also uh, endorsing um, Fish House on what a great military charity it is. Mm-hmm. And also getting to do that in New York as well is incredible. Like to do some fundraising. Yeah, I, I mean, everyone's everyone that's ran marathons before, I always say um, London Marathon is best, but being from England, I could go to London any time, any day <laughs> I want. Um, but New York is so iconic. Every, everywhere you go in New York, there's something that you, you'd have watched on a, mm. on a TV series or, or a film. And, and the Americans, are their support is unbelievable. Um, Staten Island is the start point. And then obviously, you end up in Manhattan where... You know, there's tens of thousands of people cheering on. Mm, which, yeah, it sounds very exciting, but also um, very tiring. So how long have you kind of got to train for that? When Are you kind of doing lots of training now? Because it's in November. How long do you have to kind of prep yourself for it? Well, um, I've, I've just recovered from a, a ligament injury to my ankle. Mm. So my, my trainers took a, a back step. But I have, I've started running again, which is a, which is a good factor. And once uh, now Megan is out of the way in a couple of weeks, then I will ramp up my my mileage. It is a myth that you have to do all this training. Yeah. As as long as you, you know, as long as you can do about eighteen miles, you, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Before training for marathons used to be very heavy on uh, lots of mileage each week yeah. and, and and getting hundreds of miles in each month, but. It's proven that you're more prone to injury, mm. and uh, especially the older you are. And then, as long as you're reasonably fit, I'm doing other stuff. So, I do a lot of rowing, uh, swimming, mm. cycling. So, it's all it's all fitness towards running the marathon on, on the actual day. Definitely. And do you have kind of any idea on how much you've raised over the years for Fisher House? Mm. It's over twenty thousand. That's amazing. And we also spoke a little bit about diving for the injured. So do you want to talk a little bit about what, what that is? Because I, I think it's incredible what we're able to do for people. So try yeah, so, people. so I've been involved with the Defence Medical Services Diving Association since around 2013 through Colonel Mark Foster, who every year since 2010 has done diving with the injured. Mm. So basically any injured personnel with um, it could be uh, burns injuries or hand injuries or we've had triple amputees or personnel with PTSD. Once we get them in, into the water, uh, usually we take them to a warm climate. It sounds fancy, the Maldives or the Red Sea, <laughs> but with some of their injuries, it wouldn't be good putting them into um, the cold waters of the UK. So we take them away to a warm climate mm-hmm. where it's more accessible for them and once they're in the water, their disability goes away. Being part of that, not cures, but helps with 
personnel's uh, mental health and their disability, to see them in the water with some of the clinicians and nurses that have been part of their clinical recovery path mm. is amazing. And, and everyone who goes on the trip comes back with, with so many um, great stories of what wildlife they see. Also, with going to warm countries like the Maldives and Red Sea, you're actually going to see the sea creatures and sea animals that, that you wouldn't see in the UK. So whale sharks, uh, white-tipped sharks, uh, hammerhead sharks, turtles, and my favourite, the manta ray, which mm. is an amazing creature. Uh, to see them within a couple of feet of you sets everybody at ease that mm. is, is doing the trip with you. Definitely. And what sort of feedback have you had um, from patients like that that have been injured horrifically after they've done that? Have they said, you know, that's worked wonders for my mental health? Like, you know, what sort of things have they said after doing yeah, that? Yeah, well, well, I mean, again, I'll, I'll mention Colonel Mark Foster, is a lot of the patients he would have treated, and the first thing he says to them is, I'll get you diving within two years. Mm. So somebody who's just lost an arm, had their ears, um, burnt off from horrific injuries and horrific scarring that later on they you know they might always want to cover their bodies up but he um, entrusts positivity to them and they come out diving with us and then they're not ashamed of their their injuries I'm not saying that they are ashamed of their injuries but some of the scarring mm-hmm. is quite it's quite hor- changing, it's yeah. quite horrific um, but then to be put in that environment where they can actually get in the water and experience something that they've never dreamed of doing mm-hmm. because they they wouldn't be able to do because of their disability, but actually anyone can do mm-hmm. can do that diving. So the feedback from the patients has been amazing over the years, mm-hmm. and some come back year after year. But we're always trying to thrive to get the new personnel that have been injured mm-hmm. um, to come through um, diving with the injured through the Defence Medical Service Diving Association. There is other diving associations out there with uh, Lesma, and they all do a similar great thing of um, getting people in the water to, to show that um, they're an equal to mm-hmm. anybody else. Um, and we've got quite a few double amputee and triple amputee diving instructors now. Oh, wow. So when we get new injured personnel that want to do diving, um, I think you know, the, it's a great leveling field and the person that's teaching them has got a similar injury to yeah. show that anything is possible. And I think that's gives me the greatest pleasure is that those personnel injured from, from wherever they were injured, whether it be a training exercise or whether it be in battle, that they can come diving with us and they can have um, for those couple of weeks in the water be the same as anybody else that's diving. Mm-hmm. And how often do you do that then? Is it kind of once a year? We, we do a couple of trips. Um, so it's, it's, it's every December for diving with the injured. Mm. And then we do an exercise in Scotland. Okay. Which is mainly, which is all military personnel. Mm. Um, and then the, the progression for the military people in the club is that they, they get to Scotland, which is obviously very cold, and then the reward would be come out to the warmer climate countries mm-hmm. with us. So people that are dedicated to the club, because um, usually it's, the split is it's around sixteen military personnel and around eight injured personnel. Right. 
And then amongst those 16 military personnel will be specialised divers with diving with mm. you know, dis- people with disabilities. And then we're trying to encourage um, from all different departments of the hospital, military-wise, that the um, the nurse that might have tended to certain injuries and burns mm. is then seeing that patient a couple of years later, where they originally think, you know, that's um, life is not very good, mm. and then two years later they're out diving with us. And it's like a full circle of not only yeah. the clinical personnel from the from RCVM, but also patients that they may have may have treated all come through their department at one point. It sounds so rewarding um, that you're able to do that for people as well. It sounds incredible. Can you think of a highlight in your career? Um, I know you want to study medical, which is probably the top, but have you got a highlight in your career where you kind of look back and think, wow, like I'm so proud of myself for that. Is there anything that stands out to you? I did throw that question in again, so he hasn't, he hasn't prepped his answer for that one. <laughs> uh, on, a, on a military point of view, I think you know, it was on Op Grapple 3, which the United Nations tour of Yugoslavia, mm. Yugoslavia. And our task at Christmas was to get a 40 container hospital deployed to Mostar. So at the time, Mostar was uh, an encircled town in, in Bosnia. Mm. Um, it hadn't been achieved for the previous year they were trying to get a field hospital and our squadron 60 squadron managed managed to to do that and we delivered the hospital on on christmas eve so that the local people were able to get treated by their medical staff because the hospital had been bombed um, the local hospital had bombed so i think that's that's as a, a military part of it part of you being part of that mm. so hospitals have been have been quite a big part of my military career although I'm logistics to, to, to deliver hospitals from one place to the other, then you need logistics to move it. And I think that, that achievement to deliver that hospital to Mostar is quite an achievement for the, for the squadron and, and for the British military, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been here 11 years now, and it has been, yeah, it's been a wonderful experience. And I'll be, I'll be, I'm allowed to go on until I'm 60. So. I'm allowed. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I've got another six years left. But yeah, and I'll, I'll still support Fisher House after that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what the, the military has given me over the last um, 30 odd years has, has been great. And, you know, you asked earlier about going away in dangerous places. You, you get so excited deploying, it's, mm. it's, it's hard to describe. Yeah, of course. Um, you don't always believe in why you're going, but that's not the point. You know, you, your, your government, your queen is sitting with you there, mm. so you tend to um, ignore um, your your reasons why you're there mm-hmm. um, and just do the best job that they can and and um, and keep safe and bring your colleagues back and try not to get uh, injured mm-hmm. and I think a lot of that down to luck as well the right time the right place yeah. so you could you know 10 minutes later that place would be moored but you were there 10 minutes later but you can't think like that because yeah, just... that would just send you, you know, yeah. play with your mind that you know, that could have made me or, you know, I mean, we were we used to, we used to call them coffins in Iraq, mm. at Basra Airport. We used to get mortared on Tariq 11 every morning. Mm. Um, so you'd hear the alarm go off and then the phalanx gun would shoot down the the rockets that they were sending into the base. So they, it would spread um, shrapnel over the tents. 
So it tent- just seems mad that so, that's your day job. So, so the tent is made of plastic. Obviously, the shower will go from plastic. Mm. But inside the tent, once the alarm went off, you would find your various cover. So it was usually early in the morning, about five, six o'clock in the morning. So you'd st- most days you'd still be in bed. You were just getting all, they used to target you. Basically, they, they, they knew what time you were getting up and they knew that you'd all be on the breakfast. So it'd be around breakfast time. Mm. So you dash as soon as the alarm went off into your metal coffin, coffin which was breeze box covered by a, a lead slate, uh, hard metal cover. So you could hear that there's little bits of shadow coming through the tent and dropping onto your, they call them coffins because mm. they were like, you felt like you were in a coffin. Uh, so if you were walking around, you'd have got injured. So it's yeah, so you'd lie there thinking, <laughs> yeah, and then they all cleared and you just carry on your day. Mm. And did you did you ever get injured at all then the whole time yeah. that you were out there? In no, life? I mean I mean you just got like the statistics of you know there might be um, ten you know from a thousand people to I think the the first Gulf War in ninety. 91, I think mm. it was like 50,000 British troops deployed. But casualties for that war, uh, I think there's only about 32, as in deaths. Mm. So the percentage of people that were lucky is outweighs, you know, that so, yeah. So you, you, your chances of getting injured are, are slim in logistics, mm. but there has been, first out of the bustle, I've been injured. Yeah. Um, I just think right time, right place. Yeah. And I think about as well your poor mum having all of her. Did you say all your brothers are military? Yeah, so um, she must have just been at some point, constantly bless her. Uh, <laughs> five of us out of the six have, have, have been in the force. Mm. Yeah. So I can remember coming back from Iraq in 2000, no, 1991, because I was there. <laughs> and I'd been writing to my mum and dad. They're called Bluey, so they didn't have communications that you have now so those the letters that come to your mum and dad like three weeks later mm. so I'd be telling her about my experiences and what I'd seen and obviously that that put her into she was on on a bit of a, a threat every every day because when I got home my my, my brothers were gonna fill me in mm. because they said you shouldn't be no matter what you've seen you should always write that you're having a great day and it's a bit boring mm. nothing much is happening because the people back home read read intently into your letters and go, yeah. oh, he's in danger. So they, you know, so they made, And you were just being honest. I was being honest, yeah. <laughs> I was Writing now, everything. I was 18, 19 at the time, so I was very young. <laughs> so, yeah. And you learn from that. And, and then later years when you deploy, and obviously your wife's at home uh, thinking about what you're getting up to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you, our communications have improved. And, the media coverage of every war, um, people at home are glued to the TV box, mm. which they shouldn't do. They should turn it on. They should ban the Sky News or BBC News until you finish your deployment and just carry on with their normal lives as best they can. But with my wife, I, I wouldn't say what I wouldn't say in letters or, or emails that we'd been attacked that day or mm. things like that because that that would then just just worry them. When you did get to an attack or if somebody had been injured or were killed. They would have news blackouts, mm. so normally you can get in touch with your loved ones on you know every couple of days or whatever. So if there was a, a, a news blackout for three or four days, then 
your loved ones back home would be thinking, oh, mm. they know that something's happened, but you know, at the same time, oh, why, why aren't they getting in touch with us? It's because they've been removed back home. Yeah. So that, again, for the family, is, is quite stressful because they know something's happened. Mm. Um, so when they don't hear from their loved ones, they're thinking, well, is it, is it my son? Is it my husband? And then a couple of days mm. later, it will appear on the news that such and such was injured. And then, and then you're allowed, once they release the name, you're allowed then to phone your, your loved ones mm. or your parents or anything like that to discuss. It's mental, it's mental. And did you have any real kind of frightening experiences that you did think this is, this is kind of it? Can you think of any times that you were like, oh, actually, I am, I am a bit scared or... Because um, I think to an outsider, it always feels so surreal that so you're doing that day in, day out. Quite a few. But <laughs> I was going to say, it's probably it's lots. Like, I think the, <laughs> well, it wasn't funny at the time, but the funniest one is, it was going back to Nijmegen. So 2003, the transport squadron that I was with said, look, we'll, you know, we'll take a team to Nijmegen. So we thought we'd do a bit of training at the, the airfield where we, were, where we were based. So it's quite a big airfield. Mm. So again... On that tour as well, you'd have, not every day, but some days you'd have rockets and mortars coming into your location, but it was always at certain times. So I got the team up, it was it was their summer, so I got the team up about three o'clock in the morning and we put burgers on, burgers on and we were tabbing around the airfield. So we were quite far away from hard cover, but you had you had drainage ditches on the side of, mm. of the runway and on the, on the roads within the airbase. We got... Um, mortared and rocketed and attacked on the same morning right. but it was unusual because they don't usually, usually do that so we were intended to get three or four hours training for that megan and uh, these rockets and we could actually see them coming in and landing so that was quite challenging so we ended up in the ditches with the bergens over your body and over your head as you can hear the rockets landing 20 30 meters away mm. so we didn't do that again <laughs> Crazy. So that was for, we were training for Nijmegen. Yeah. So we, we didn't do it. So we ended up going to, when we finished our tour, we gave up our leave to go to Nijmegen. Now, none of the team had done any training, so we were, we were quite poor when we got there. But the Nijmegen or Dutch military and the British military who run it out there, they realised that we'd just come back from Iraq. So mm. they were quite supportive of, of our team every day of um, what, what we that we've done no, done no training because of the environment that we were in. Mm. And um, yeah, I think that was a better homecoming then what we got. Because <laughs> it, it's quite a big festival there, yeah. in our Megan marches. So. so yeah, I think that's 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 one of the, the funniest ones. <laughs> wow, crazy. It's a different world to people like me when you've lived experiences like that, but really interesting to to find out about them. I'm trying to think. What, um, what if you've got any of the life and death situations? I have, but I'm not going <laughs> That one's not for the public scenes. <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing no, your experiences. No, thank you. I, mean, if, I don't know if, it, if people enjoyed the, the podcast or whatever, or it gives a bit more highlight to, to what Fish House does. Mm, definitely. Um, and another factor is that it's the same staff that have been here from day one. Mm. So, you know, that's, that's a testament of not only what the house gives to the, the patients, but what Patrick and Julie and Phil, what, and what they bring to the mm. house. 
because um, it's rare that people stay at the same job for yeah. for, for so long. Definitely. Uh, different than the military because you're contracted to do it. Well, you're not actually stay. You can sign off any time you want, but usually when you get past a certain point, mm-hmm. military person will stay in for their 12 or 24 years to get a pension. But this is this is different. The, the support that, that Phil, Julie and, and Pat get Pat give is, 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 is different. Mm-hmm. And they must have seen that you must interview them because they they must have seen yes. the amount of people that come in. Um, and I'm sure they get loads of great feedback from, from all the families that have been here. There's some families I've had to stay in here for three or four months. I've gained some really nice friendships here from people that I've never knew in my life mm. who were military. So, so Stu Lawson for Small Arms Corps, um, Guardsman Dave Watson, and Yorkshire Regent Michael Clough. Mm. So, got, you know, they are lifelong friends now that have met them and their families, that they were here all the time. Mm. So, you know, all three of them had um, extensive injuries. Yeah. And Because um, normally it's just my drivers that, that come up here and do the job myself and the manager. Mm-hmm. But I'll sometimes come across and um, getting to meet people like Dave, mm-hmm. Stuart and Michael is, um, is another reason why I want to um, raise, raise, raise money and... and um, attention to Fish House and what they do because they they all three of them benefited from um, the facilities here and then they went on to further rehabilitation to, to be what they are now. A huge thank you to Mac for sharing with me his experiences. I It's just one of those interviews that you just you just can't relate. I mean I can't relate to a lot of the people that I interview but yeah especially with war zones and some of the things that Mac has experienced in life just is is absolutely crazy um but so interesting to listen to and especially that diving for injured initiative i think it's just amazing so a huge thank you to mac for everything that he does at fisher house all of the fundraising it never goes unnoticed he comes from an incredible team so thank you so much mac for sharing your story and i'll be back same time next week for a brand new episode see you then